0: Well, this morning we continue our series in the Psalms. This summer we're in the Psalm 20s. We'll go back to a different series this fall. I'm going to pray once again and ask for God's blessing um, as his word is preached this morning. Father, thank you so much for giving us Psalm 28. Father, we confess that nothing good will happen in our hearts and lives right now unless you send your spirit. So, Spirit of God, we invite you to come into this place and, and Allow us, enable us to understand and apply this text, and most importantly, worship you as a result of the truths found in this text. I pray that you would guard my lips very carefully. Have me only say what you want me to say, nothing less and nothing more. And I pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thirty years ago, my high school tennis coach handed out uniforms when the season began And he said, when the season's over, I want all these uniforms back. The end of the season finally arrived, and the day of reckoning had come. After practice, in front of all my teammates, Coach Norton said, Farley, where's your uniform? I said, Coach, very sheepishly, I've lost it. And he said, Farley, I warned you weeks ago. Now it's time to run lines. Now, context here. We were at Comstock Park on the South Hill. Comstock Park has six tennis courts lined up in a row. Each court has five lines. How many of you run lines before? Most of you have, probably. You start out, you touch the very first line, touch the next line, sprint back, back and forth, back and forth. This means I had to run 30 sets of sprints At Comstock Park. I was not a happy camper. After several agonizing minutes, I was only on court two with four courts to go. I was miserable. My back hurt, my shins hurt, my whole body was drenched in sweat, and as I ran, I remember calling down psalms of malediction on Coach Norton. (laughs) With every stride, I wanted revenge. The coach's discipline seemed to me Cruel and unusual. I really wanted to call the AD at Lewis and Clark High School and complain of his abusive, old-school discipline of me. Now, let's be honest. I got exactly what I deserved from Coach Norton. I needed to be rudely awakened from my slumber of irresponsibility. Yet, in the moment, as I was sprinting down those courts for 30 or 40 minutes... I felt like Coach Jeff Norton was my enemy. And all I could think about was deliverance from his evil reign. Now, maybe you have an enemy, a real enemy. Let's be honest. Again, Coach Norton was not my enemy. We actually caught up a few years ago, and we laughed about the past. I needed to be disciplined. But it seemed like he was my enemy. And some of you have real enemies, enemies that make your life miserable, enemies that threaten your career, enemies that threaten you bodily harm. King David, who wrote Psalm 28 3,000 years ago, had real enemies, enemies that wanted to kill him with bows and spears and swords and rocks. When David faced his enemies, he knew exactly what to do. He cried out to God for deliverance and God delivered him. In a similar sense, when you and I face enemies, we can also cry out to God for deliverance, and God hears us, and God delivers us. Well, what specifically did David cry out to God? Well, his cry was twofold. It was a cry for help, and it was a cry of confidence. A cry for help and a cry for for confidence. Those are our two points this morning. Let's look at each aspect of this cry in a little more detail. First, David's cry for help. What does David specifically cry out to God in his moment of need? Well, he cries, he pleads for God to listen to him. Look with me at Psalm 28, verses 1 and 2. To you, O Lord. By the way, he's using... Uh, The name Yahweh, whenever you see Lord in all caps, that means Yahweh. That's God's personal name, God's covenant name. To you, O Lord, to you, O Yahweh, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Now, apparently, David has been crying out to God for a while, maybe weeks, months, years, we don't know exactly, and it seems like nothing has happened. Therefore, David pleads with God three times in verses 1 to 3 for God to listen to him because it feels to David like God is deaf, like God doesn't care about his problems like God can't hear him, or if God can hear, God is being passive. Maybe you felt that way in the past. You've cried out to God with tears for deliverance, and it seems like heaven is silent. Your boss is still making your life miserable. The playground bully is still embarrassing you. Your coworker is still taking credit for all the work that you did. Your abuser has yet to be prosecuted. Your uncle still mocks you at the family Christmas party because you're a Christian. Or you've been estranged from a particular family member for years because of something awful they did to you decades ago. You've cried out to God for deliverance, but nothing has happened. And you wonder if God is listening. Isn't it helpful to know that King David felt this way too at times? In fact, one of my professors in seminary argued the most commonly asked question in the whole Bible is the question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you let me suffer this way? So David cries out for God to listen. In addition, David cries out for God to judge. He cries for God to listen, and he cries out for God to judge. Verses 3 to 5. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. This is a cry for God to judge with discernment. David says, God, please don't allow me to experience collateral damage as you judge the wicked around me. Verse 4. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. This is a cry for God to judge the evil deeds of the wicked, the unbelievers. Verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. This is a cry for God to judge the unbelief of the wicked, which implies that the wicked people are tormenting David, and he cries out to God for justice. David cries out to God to listen, and he cries out to God for justice. What do we make of verses 1 to 5? This is called an imprecatory psalm. And imprecation is a fancy way of saying curse. And an imprecatory psalm is a cursing psalm. There's many of these in in the Psalter. An imprecatory psalm, the psalmist is calling down God's curses or God's justice on one's enemies. Wait a minute, Dave. Doesn't Jesus tell us we're supposed to love our enemies? And Dave, isn't that Old Testament? We live under the New Testament. Let me make a few brief statements uh, in regards to how you and I should think about the imprecatory psalms calling down God's curses on our enemies uh, on this side of the cross. This is a complicated subject, but here's a few bullet points. The Old Testament contains numerous commands to love one's enemies. This is not just a New Testament thing. In addition, the New Testament contains numerous imprecatory prayers. For instance, in the book of Revelation, the martyrs in heaven cry out to God to judge their enemies, Revelation 6.10. And they rejoice in the judgment of the wicked, Revelation 18.20 and 19.1-6. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words, If anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed or judged, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Even Jesus issued woes or curses on his enemies, as uh, described in Matthew 23, when he has a long diatribe, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, he says, like eight times in a row, dealing with the self-righteous Pharisees. So imprecatory prayers are not just an Old Testament thing, Furthermore, the New Testament clearly and repeatedly exhorts you and I to love our enemies, which is what makes Christianity so unique. We're not just called to love those that love us. We are called to love those that wound us and hurt us and make our lives miserable. And Christ is the primary example of that, suffering and dying for his enemies, Finally, the New Testament exhorts us to never, ever, ever seek personal vengeance. We should never resort to this violence unless uh, we are involved in self-defense. I think you can make a biblical case for self-defense and just war. But what I'm talking here is about personal vengeance. We should never, ever take vengeance into our own hands. That's strictly forbidden in many places in the New Testament. So, summary. The Old and the New Testament have no problem holding intention. the difficult command to love our enemies with our righteous desire for justice. One scholar writes this, We must always balance Father save the lost with Father pour out your wrath upon the wicked. Now, considering these truths, how would you explain the imprecatory psalms to a child? And again, there are many imprecatory psalms in this altar. This is one of roughly 10 to 15. Well, here's one scholar's attempt. He writes this. I happen to be reading one of the imprecatory psalms to my son, and as I pause to remark, my boy, a lad of 10 years, asked with some earnestness, Father, Do you think it is right for a good man to pray for the destruction of his enemies like that? Then he reminded me that Christ taught us to pray for our enemies. I paused a moment to know how to shape the reply to fully meet and satisfy his question. And then I said, My son, if an assassin should enter the house by night and murder your mother, then escape And the sheriff and citizens were all out in pursuit, trying to catch him. Would you not pray to God that they might succeed and arrest him? That he might be brought to justice? Of course, he said. Then I said, the men against whom David prays were bloody men. Men of falsehood and crime. Enemies to the peace of society. Seeking his own life. And unless they were arrested and the wicked devices defeated, many innocent persons must suffer. This explanation seemed to satisfy his young mind. Well, Dave, how do the imprecatory psalms help us to love and forgive our enemies? Consider this story. One author writes, there is a fist-shaped hole in the door of my childhood bedroom. It was there when my mom and I moved in, and I'd soon learn it portended what my stepfather could do. Even writing this more than two decades later, I still feel fear. I left home before I graduated from high school, and just before college, Christ called me to himself, and I had a lot of anger built up from those years with my stepdad, who was very violent. And I definitely wasn't ready to forgive Over the next few years, Jesus taught me to love my enemies in a most unexpected way through praying the imprecatory psalms. These psalms, with their cries for vengeance and justice, show us mortals how to relinquish our right to vengeance and trust the Lord. The Lord gladly hears these prayers, and he'll answer them in this life or the next. The wrongs done against us are put into perspective when we realize justice is just a matter of time. Crying out for God's justice when there was no one else to help me freed me to love and not hold a grudge against my stepdad. Rather than carrying around my anger, never allowing the wound to heal, the imprecatory Psalms taught me to bring that injustice to the Lord and trust Him to act justly. Which raises the question Has someone wounded you? Do you have enemies, people that have made your life miserable? If you do, Psalm 28 is for you. And Psalm 28 frees us to pray this way. Father, please help me to love and forgive and serve my enemies. Help me, Father. And Father, I pray that at some point justice would be Served. If this person who sinned against me does not repent of his sins and trust you, I know that someday they will get justice. And God, you are honored and glorified in your love, mercy, and kindness, and you are honored and glorified in your righteousness and your justice. But maybe you've prayed this way for a while and nothing seems to happen. You're wondering, if God hears. This brings us to the second and much shorter point. First, David's cry for help. Second, David's cry of confidence. Will God hear David? Is David confident that God will hear him? And the answer is a resounding yes. David is confident that God hears. Look with me At Psalm 28, 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. God hears everything because he is everywhere present, and he is all-knowing, and he knows everything in history. He knows your cries before you even cry them. He hears it all. He knows it all, and he cares. Listen to the words of another imprecatory psalm, Psalm 56, verses 6 to 8. David says, Speaking of his enemies, they stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O oh God. Verse 8 is so precious. You have kept count, God, of all my tossings. You know of all the times I have tossed and turned in my bed, wondering, God, will you vindicate me? Then he says to God, You have put all my tears in your bottle. Every single tear that you've cried, Yahweh has put in his bottle. He knows every tear that's ever run down your face, and he cares, he hears the pain, he knows the pain, and we can be confident that he hears. Now, just because God has not delivered you yet, it does not mean he does not care for you or he does not hear you. God has his own timetable. And his timetable is always the best. How do we know? Because his timetable ensures that all that happens to us, including sometimes our lack of deliverance, is somehow working for our good and His glory, Romans 8:28 to 30. Just because you haven't been delivered yet, does it not mean that God doesn't care or God doesn't hear? David is confident that God hears. In addition, David is confident that God delivers. um, Verses 7 and 8, David says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people, he is the saving refuge of his anointed. David is confident that God will deliver him. He says, The Lord will deliver with strength and with shield. And we know that God has unlimited strength, he is omnipotent, which means he has all power. And David also describes this deliverance with the language of a shield. The most common type of shield in David's day was a small circular shield made of of, um, oiled animal hide over a wooden frame. But God's impenetrable shield protects David on every side. David knows that the maker of all things is his strength. And his shield. David also says that God is his refuge. And the book of Psalms develops this theme at length using a rich vocabulary of related words like rock, fortress, stronghold, deliverer, shield, dwelling place, and more. The closest thing that we have to a refuge is possibly an embassy. So imagine that you are in Russia or Argentina or China and you're being pursued by mobsters or by corrupt police officers or by the Argentinian government. Who knows what you did? You're in trouble. And you're thinking, where could I go? What should I do? I'm going to be captured and tortured. But if you run to the U.S. Embassy and get through the doors, once you're in the embassy, you have a refuge. Because that embassy is technically U.S soil, and no one can harm you or touch you when you are in a U.S. embassy, if you're a U.S. citizen overseas. It's a place of refuge. It's a rock. It's a shield. It's a hiding place. Rock, verse 1. Strength and shield, verse 7. Refuge, verse 8, are all words used to describe God's ability to deliver David. David was confident that God heard his cry And David was confident that God had the power to deliver him from his violent enemies. And over David's life, this was proved again and again and again. David was delivered from wild animals, from Goliath, from King Saul, and from his own son who rose up against him. God proved that he had the power to deliver his servant David. And David was confident of this. How about you? How confident are you that God can deliver you from your enemies? Well, David, what about those who have not been delivered in this life? And again, sometimes God does not deliver us right away because he wants us to grow in godliness. He wants us to learn dependence on him. He wants us to love our enemies. He wants us to trust him more, rely on him more. Some saints will not be delivered until they die. But make no mistake, that is deliverance because the moment you die, you are ushered into the very presence of Almighty God. No more pain, no more sickness, no more sadness, and no more enemies. And in light of eternity... A life of 80 or 90 years of being tormented by enemies is going to pale in comparison to what God has in store for us. The Apostle Paul calls that light and momentary affliction in light of eternity. Again, how confident are you that God can deliver you? Well, on this side of the cross, we can be even more confident than David that God has the power to deliver us. Well, how can I say that? Look with me again at verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 28. The Lord is the strength of his people and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. King David was the anointed king of Israel. Verse 8. And David claims That God is the refuge of his anointed one. But as many of you know, David pointed us to someone far greater. He pointed us to his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. And we read in the Gospels that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure to rule and reign over his people perfectly. Jesus was the true anointed one. Jesus knew about Psalm 28, and he read that God is a refuge for his anointed. But on the cross, when Jesus cried out for deliverance, when he said with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment... God, the Father, was not a refuge for his anointed one. Why? Because in that moment, God wanted you and I to be delivered more than he wanted to rescue his own son. On the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. On the cross, Jesus became the imprecation. He became the curse. He suffered the curses for us. We were God's enemies. We deserve to be cursed. But instead, Jesus took the curses. God did not deliver him. Rather, God poured out wrath and justice on him. God cursed him. Listen to the words of Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That describes all of us. None of us do all the things written in the book of the law. Therefore, all of us deserve God's curse, God's judgment. But then Galatians 3.13 utters these amazing words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Psalm 28, again, is an imprecatory psalm. Jesus received the imprecation, the curse that we deserve so that we can be delivered from all of our enemies. The enemy of sin, the power of sin, the consequences of sin, the devil, death, Jesus absorbed the Father's wrath, freeing us from the worst enemies we could possibly imagine. And if that's true, if God delivered us from our greatest enemies by becoming a curse for us on the cross, then surely he has the power to deliver us from our earthly enemies. Yes, we can be very, very, very confident that Christ has the power to deliver us from our enemies when we cry out to him, In faith. Let me close with a few application thoughts. When we wonder if God hears our cries for deliverance, what must we do? We must look to the cross and see Jesus hanging there, reminding us that God has, in fact, delivered us from our greatest enemies. On the cross, He said, It is finished, which means that all of our enemies have been dealt with decisively. Do you need deliverance from someone this morning? If you do, cry out to God for deliverance. He hears, he cares, and if he thinks it's best for you, he will deliver you. And again, if your enemy does not repent of his sins and trust in Jesus, they will experience something like the cross, God's curses, for all eternity, Our prayer should be, God, save them, rescue them. Jesus, I pray that you would experience the justice that they deserve. But if they refuse you, Jesus, I know they will receive justice someday. Either way, you will be delivered, ultimately. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus, you have no hope of deliverance at this point, Sin, the flesh, the devil, and the world, they will destroy your life. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may feel enslaved to some sin. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, anger, pride, and you think, I just can't stop doing these things. What do I do? Jesus came to deliver us from all of our enemies, all you have to do is cry out to Him for deliverance. You must say, "God, I admit that I need you. I confess my sins to you. Would you please come and dwell inside of me and deliver me from all the things that enslave me? And here's the best part: This deliverance from God, it can't be earned through our righteous deeds. It is given out freely, offered to the world, free of charge. But you have to humble yourself and admit that you need deliverance. And when you do, Christ will deliver you. And if that's the case, why delay? Cry out to Christ today. Let's pray.